0: Turn to Second Timothy three. Second Timothy three. We finished the book of Ezekiel last week with Ezekiel 45 through 48 speaking of the millennial temple. We began that study. Normally I do this at the very at the last sermon. I kind of postponed it till this week because there was a lot to cover last week. We began that study on October 20th of last year. And it spanned 26 sermons. As we came near the end of our study in Ezekiel, we spoke of many events that I presented in light of the future, a topic that is known in theology as biblical eschatology, that's the fancy name. We spoke of the Millennial Temple, which of course would be during the Millennial Kingdom, which is a future event. We spoke of Gog and Magog, the king of the north. The only other time Gog and Magog is mentioned is in Revelation 20 after the millennial reign. We spoke of our numerous promises of God to restore His people that we linked to the end of the tribulation. And so we had a, a lot of Old Testament prophecy related to end times events. And I would like to take the next several weeks in a mini-series and try to put some of these events together in the end times. It's a it's a good um, time to kind of step into eschatology because we've just finished speaking of end times events and, and it's on our minds and, and we can put some of the pieces together. But I'd like to go a little bit deeper than that. We're going to go all the way back to the very foundations of what compels us to believe what we believe concerning the end times. What I mean by this is that we're going to first cover proper biblical interpretation. Then we'll cover the framework within which we um, use that method of interpretation, which we will uh, call dispensationalism. That'll be the framework within which we take our methods of interpretation and carry them out And then we'll build upon our proper interpretation a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual approach and a dispensational framework and as we look through, we would say those lenses, because they are lenses, we will see prophecy in a certain light, we'll see things in a certain order, we'll uh, understand things to be a certain way. So this will be a bit of a journey, but I believe it's an important journey, not just in destination but also in origin because I'm very troubled by what I see regularly in the church at large today. It's not necessarily always that people aren't being taught, though this does happen in many churches. But if a pastor is only going to give people the fruit of his understanding, I had a a seminary professor once that gave me some advice that is probably good advice but I don't like it. Um, He told me, and he told the class that we ought not be giving our people the foundation of our study, we ought to be giving them the fruit of our study. So we do the study, we know the background, we know the in-depth stuff, and then we simply give them the application. We give them um, how it, it should apply to them. And I'm, It might be good advice from a, an engaging standpoint. A, uh, this is how you engage people and keep, them, keep, keep sermons relevant to their lives. Um, Certainly the last two weeks on Sunday evenings, uh, we had application, and I trust that the application was a blessing, but the bulk of that teaching was very academic. There's no way I could have taken the measurements of the Millennial Temple and applied them to your lives without really getting weird. However, does that mean that I don't teach it? Well, no. Because we still can take that which we've learned and we can understand some great truths from it, not only drawing out application about Zadok and his his um, love for the Lord and his, his zeal to do what's right, but even the millennial temple itself, simply understanding the scale helps us understand revelation. Helps us understand that this temple was not Herod's temple, that this temple was not Zerubbabel's temple, that this temple was not Solomon's temple. And that stuff, even though maybe it wasn't all that interesting and maybe it wasn't relevant to your day-to-day. That stuff is essential when you put it all together. And I fear that so many pastors are so busy giving you just that application, something you can take with you, something you can hold for that week, that they're failing to give you everything that you need to put all the pieces together. And the problem with this is that when you've gotten all of the conclusions, all of the destinations without knowing your origins, without knowing the foundation, without understanding all of the the details of how you get there, all it takes is one really convincing heretic. And all of the efforts of that solid pastor who studied and who has delivered the fruit of his study could very well come crashing down. Unless God's people don't just know what's right, but where in the Bible God says it, and why it is we believe it, there is always a real danger of error. So my goal over the next several weeks will not just be to tell you the what of prophecy, but also to tell you the why of prophecy and the how of how we get there. And so, there may be things that you're going to disagree with me on as far as some of the nitty-gritty of prophecy, but what you won't be able to do at the end of this mini-series is look at me and say, Pastor, I don't know how you got there. Because I'm going to walk you through it. I'm going to walk you through not just the prophecies themselves, but the, the method of interpretation that we, that we use to get there the dispensational framework that we use. And so what you will be able to do is not just know this is what we believe. I believe that the, there will be seven years of tribulation that will be raptured before the tribulation begins. All of those important elements. But you'll know the reason why I understand it this way and the person down the street sees it entirely differently, even though they're reading the same text, is because of the glasses through which I'm looking at it. And so that's important for you to understand. So we're going to just talk about a few foundational concepts this evening. And the first foundational concept is this. Number one, God's Word is true. God's Word is true. These are the things, these foundational concepts, are things that more or less we take for granted at Legacy Baptist Church when we read the Scriptures. When I open my Bible on a weekly basis... And I exposit to you the Word of God, I am not starting out by saying, okay, well this week, folks, we're just gonna we're gonna assume the Bible's true for this one. Okay, I'm gonna open my Bible to this passage and we're just gonna assume it's true. Nor am I going to every week tell you we take the stand that God's word is true. I could. But I take it for granted that that people of, of the church Understand that from time to time we teach on it. I'm teaching on it tonight. We teach on it in our new members class. But I'm taking it for granted by and large that you believe God's Word is true. That's how I'm teaching it and preaching it. That's not to say that there's no debate over concepts of broader Christendom as to whether or not God's Word is true. But the only reason that there are major debates over that in broader Christendom is because there are many unbelievers in broader Christendom. Among believers, the four foundational concepts, the first one being that God's Word is true, these four foundational concepts um, should be by and large agreed upon. And the first, God's Word is true. Cover to cover, 100%. You're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look with me at verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction... For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. What God wanted written was written. Everything God chose to have written was true because God cannot lie. In every area of life that God's Word touches, it is accurate. What God wanted preserved was preserved. So we can be confident that God has given to us what he wanted us to have to the end that we might have the relationship with him that he desires us to have. All scripture is given, the text says, by inspiration, literally meaning that all scripture is God breathed. God has given it to us. It came from him to us, and it says that it is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a few minutes. Now, this does not mean that God has told us everything about Himself. Simply, that God has told us everything we need. Do you know the difference between telling a person everything and telling a person everything they need? There's a difference, isn't there? I'm a father. I have three children. And as a father... I endeavor always to be truthful with my children. However, that doesn't always mean I tell them everything I know. I have a problem of doing that. As a pastor, I have a problem of doing that. As a father, sometimes I have a problem of doing that. When somebody asks me a simple question that I could probably answer with just a yes and no, I want to give them the whole story. But that's not always necessary, and that's not always profitable, is it? I tell my children that the stars are in the sky. Now, for their part, for at least for my daughters, their particular season in life, two and a half years old, this is sufficient. The stars are in the sky. Now, I could try to explain to them outer space. I could try to explain to them huge flaming balls of gas, but I don't need to. It's not going to profit them for me to explain to them that the stars aren't actually in the sky as much as they are beyond the atmosphere, beyond the sky, into outer space, millions of light years away, and we're seeing their light as it has reached us, I don't need to explain all that to them. And so, while I'm telling them the truth in relation to what they would understand, I'm not giving them everything because they just simply don't need to know it, can't handle it, aren't ready for it, whatever the case may be. There is much that God has not told us. This does not make God unjust. This does not make God a liar. He has told us the truth and He has told us as much as He has in His sovereign wisdom because that's what He wants us to know. If He hasn't told us, we can speculate on it. But you know, the reason why He hasn't told us is because He doesn't need us to know. And this can give us a great peace of mind. Not only then can we know that when we read the Scriptures and there's something extremely ambiguous, we can know that it's ambiguous because God allowed it to be that way. Number two it can give us comfort knowing that God has told us sufficient amount of material for us to have the relationship with Him that He wants us to have. So we don't have to fear that we're missing something from God. Because the Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable. Profitable. It is impossible to consistently and accurately interpret the Word of God without a foundational recognition that God's Word is true from beginning to end. And unfortunately, the issues surrounding the interpretation of Scripture are rooted in this very problem. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. For better than 150 years now, in at least modern Western culture, Christian culture, scholars have spent all their might... Casting doubt upon the truth of God's Word. They've told us that the Greek and Hebrew texts of the Bible are irrecoverable. And that our modern texts are simply man's best guess at what the Bible once said. They have told us that we have made great strides in the field of textual criticism in the last 150 years. So much so that we are closer to the original Word of God today than the church has been since the days of the early church. But... Who knows? We may make a manuscript discovery tomorrow that will completely reshape our entire understanding of the Bible. That's literally the philosophy of Christianity out there right now. So the origins of the Bible have been heavily attacked and ironically, it's been attacked by those that are within Christendom. Are they Christians? I would not necessarily say that in all cases. But many who are well-meaning Christians who have simply been blinded by this humanistic philosophy. Well, then came the cultural revolution of the 1960s. For the first time in history the State, uh, of the United States, culture began to sta- stand in direct opposition to biblical values. And this was a new thing for the church. For the first time in the United States history, the church actually had to work to convince the next generation that what they were saying had some truth to it. For the first time in United States history, the church had to work to convince people to come to church and to listen to them. Before that, it was pretty much status quo. Talk to some of the elderly folks in our church, and they would say even if the parents didn't go to church, they would without fail send their children to Sunday school. Because they wanted their children to have that basic foundation, the basic moral foundation. They would given up on it long ago, but they still wanted their children to have it. It's not like that anymore. And as the church recognized this new need to convince people and this new need to actually win people instead of just being status quo, they didn't do a very good job at that. Various elements of the church theorized that the best way to win The people back from the world was to begin to look like the world. If we start looking like the world, then we'll attract them and then we'll win them, and then we can tell them that everything we won them with is false and wrong. But you know, it doesn't work that way. If they knew their Bibles better, they would have known that personal separation is an essential part of living this proper testimony for the Word of God. And where is this all rooted? Where is this all founded? It's, in, it's founded in the fact that at some point, many years before the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, people had already lost faith in the truth of God's Word. So when they hear things like, we need to be separated from the world, we need to live lives of holiness before God, they say, well, we can reinterpret that because uh, we don't even know if that's what the original text said. As doubt is cast upon the Word of God, the particularly the periphery that's being attacked or the periphery that's being um, targeted by culture will fall rapidly to reinterpretation of the Word of God. Things that had been considered sin for, uh, in the church for generations suddenly became okay. Churches that stood firm on issues that clashed with culture soon found themselves on the outside looking in, struggling to fight against elements of the church that told people that these sins were okay. Today, we are 50 years into or beyond the beginning of this cultural revolution. 50 years into this church philosophy of become like them to win them. And the church has had a comfort with sin unlike anything we could have ever imagined. It's not that the churches don't have Bibles. It's not that the churches don't read their Bibles. But they aren't convinced that what the Bible says is what it means. They've had enough people cast doubt upon their understanding of the Word of God or upon the validity of the Word of God itself that they are just a mess of theological confusion. They have been convinced that the Bible is a subjective book open to interpretation. They have been convinced that the, that biblical interpretation is allowed to change with time and with culture. And therefore, the morals of the Bible can adapt to the morals of the culture within which it operates. But the Scriptures themselves stand in bold Opposition to the direction that the church has taken. The Scriptures declare themselves to be inerrant, infallible, and inspired by God. They also declare themselves to be providentially preserved by God so that we can have confidence in the reality that we today have access to every word that God intended us to have. Not just concepts, mind you, but words. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7 say this, The words of the Lord are pure words. as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God has promised to preserve His words. Not just for the generation of David who wrote these words in Psalm 12, but for every generation forever. And if the Scriptures are God-breathed, And if the New Testament and the Old Testament, those 66 books of the Bible, are Scripture, and they are, and the Scriptures are God-breathed, and God has promised to preserve His words, then, folks, the Word of God, the Scriptures are preserved. To say that we have lost God's Word or that we can't know God's true message to us or that even a small percentage of God's Word is open for question and debate is to cast doubt upon that which God has firmly established in the heavens to add confusion to where God has given clarity and to open generations of the church to severe error. God has promised to preserve His Word. word, God has preserved His Word. We can rest upon His Word. We can build our lives upon His Word and we can know His Word. God's Word is true from beginning to end. Every area of life and culture that God's Word touches is 100% accurate. When we approach God's Word, we do not approach God's Word from a top-down fashion, judging God's Word as to whether this particular passage, according to critical analysis, is actually valid or if it may have been pulled from some secular source whether or not God's words were actually inspired by God or whether they were just um, traditions of men passed down from generation to generation. Whether or not the Bible is just a compilation of older myths that had uh, passed uh, by oral traditions so that all of those oral myths were then recorded in a way that could uh, allow a man to relate to God so that man could feel close to the deities that we crave. We don't approach the Word of God judging it from a top-down perspective. We don't approach the Word of God questioning its accuracy or questioning its truth. We approach the Word of God on our knees humbly and begging God's Word to judge us in recognition of the divinity, the divine source of God's Word and its intrinsic infallibility. So, number one, God's Word is true. 100%. Number two, God intended His Word to communicate that truth to the readers. Oh, by the way, God's Word is true. God's Word is preserved. We have it today. And then God intended His Word to communicate that truth to the readers. As we're back in Second Timothy 3, We mentioned already that word inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, God breathed. The the next phrase says, and is profitable. We said that already. And the Scriptures tell us it's profitable for doctrine. That's teaching about right and wrong. For reproof. That's speaking against the wrong. For correction. That's speaking for the right. And for instruction in righteousness. That's guidance on how to stay right and how to avoid the wrong. So everything having to do with what is right in this world and what is wrong in this world is touched on and is profitable through Scripture. One of the most important things we must know and remember about God's Word is that He intends it to communicate to us. He didn't write the Bible in code. He didn't have the Bible written with the intent that only certain people should understand it. He he had the Bible written. He inspired the Bible with the intent that every man would have access to the truths within the Scriptures. This is very important. There are many in Christendom today who would like you to think that the Bible is, in one way or another, inaccessible to you. They want you to believe that only certain people with special knowledge or special gifts have access to God's Word. That only people with certain Training can understand God's Word. That only if you pay them or support them will they give you access to that knowledge. That only by God's special divine blessing can this one man have the authority to confer what it is that God is telling us. That God's Word is exclusive to one language or one translation or one denomination. Folks, all of these things are false. God did not write the Bible in code. He wrote it in plain language with the intent that those who read it would understand. We shouldn't infer in the Bible. In other words, we shouldn't we well, we can certainly infer at certain points, but we shouldn't take inferences as truth in the Bible as a dogmatic truth. We shouldn't read into things that are not there. We shouldn't assume uh, that the Bible is, has something to hide that we need to find, we should assume that the Bible is there for us to be understood. Let me give you some examples of how we can get this idea wrong in, in Christendom. For a thousand years, the Catholic Church convinced the majority of Western culture that the Bible was only valid if it was kept in and read in Latin. Latin was not the common man's tongue. And by doing so, the common man had no access to the Word of God, which means they were trusting exclusively in the priests and the bishops and the Pope to tell them what the Bible said. Can you see any problem with that? Can you see any problem when you say, I can't access this, so can you tell me what God wants me to know? Could you imagine if you had no access to the Word of God and you just had to trust your pastor week in and week out to be telling you what the Bible actually said? Is it not one of the greatest blessings in the world that I can tell you, I can spend 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour and 10 minutes, as happened a week and a half ago, um, telling you some things from the Bible and then you can go home and open your Bible to that passage and say, huh, I don't know that I agree with him. Or, you know, that's right. As I read this, that's exactly what this is saying. What a blessing that is. For a thousand years, the Catholic Church convinced Western civilization that they didn't need that, that Latin was the only language in which the Bible could be read or written, and that they just needed to trust what these Catholic popes and bishops and priests had to say. And that threw the Western world into what we now call the Dark Ages time of complete darkness because man had no access to the revealed Word of God. In modern philosophy, many well-meaning Christians have become convinced that unless you know Greek and Hebrew, you cannot properly understand and interpret God's Word. This is ironically an extension of the Catholic doctrine that said you couldn't know it without knowing Latin. Now your pastor loves the Greek, loves the Hebrew, knows the Greek, knows the Hebrew uses them and even pops them up on the screen quite regularly for you to benefit from should you have any desire to uh, improve yourself to the point where you can understand a little bit more of what's going on in the Greek. However, I have said this many times and I will stand by it that you do not need to know Greek or Hebrew to understand the Word of God. We have been blessed by God with tremendous... um, translations of the Word of God, tremendous resources at our disposal better than any other time in history. And we can know God's Word in our own language. However, there are many that say that unless you know the Greek and the Hebrew, you should feel inadequate just reading, studying, and knowing your Bible. I believe this is wrong. Quite regularly, particularly in our age, there have been books published about secret codes in the Bible. That if you read the third and the fifth and the seventh line of the first book, and the twelfth chapter, that you'll find some amazing mystery that will tell you what year Jesus Christ is coming again. Or that if you look into um, the certain book of prophecy and you relate it to events that are happening in the United States that you'll find out that that prophecy is actually meant to be a prophecy to this one particular country at this one particular time in history, the United States of America. And wouldn't you know it, they just they figured it out. They found the code. They found the secret. God's been hiding it all these years and here we finally found it. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work in secret codes. As if God was was hiding it from anyone and everybody except for the one guy that wants to make a killing selling his book. In our own circles, there are many that believe the King James Bible is the only Bible that contains God's Word. And every other version is not just corrupt or misguided, but literally sinful and wrong. We do not subscribe to that view at Legacy Baptist Church We recognize that the Greek text by which every other translation with the exception of the King James, sort of the New King James, and perhaps we might say uh, the Webster's translation is um, a reflection of a corrupt Greek text. But even though that Greek text is corrupt and therefore many of these English translations have corruptions in them, we do not pretend that a person can't get saved out of any other version, or that a person who uses another version of the Bible cannot be a good Christian. We're simply recognizing the inconsistency in philosophy whereby these people say that there are corruptions in our Bible and take things out of our Bible and add things to our Bible every couple of years and tell us that we're getting closer and closer to God's Word and then somehow try to convince us that God's Word is true when they're changing it every couple of years. That philosophy just doesn't work. There's something wrong there and that's the reason why we stand upon the King James Version of the Bible. Not only is it a superbly translated English version, but it also is not susceptible to the same um, liberal influences of literary higher criticism that these other versions have become susceptible unto. All of these and many more are examples of people who have lost sight in one way or another, some worse than others, of the fact that God intended the Bible to be read, to be understood, and He wanted it to be written in order that it could communicate truth to the world. If we can, while we're still on this point, I'd like to zoom out for just a moment and consider something that's kind of beside the point, but I'm excited about it anyway. When we say God has chosen to communicate with man, we know He has written a book over several thousands of years, over dozens of penmen with one author, the Holy Spirit. But Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us this. We thought about this in Sunday school last week, I believe. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. The message of these verses is amazing enough, is it not? That God has chosen in these final days, the final days before the advent of His kingdom, to speak to us directly through His capital W word, that is His Son, Jesus Christ. But what is also amazing is what these verses take for granted to begin with. Not just that God has chosen in these last days to communicate through His Son, Jesus Christ, but that God has chosen to communicate with us at all. What a truth. What an amazing blessing it is that God has chosen to communicate with man. In Eden, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. God spake with Noah. God sat at meat with Abraham. God used patriarchs and judges and prophets and kings to declare Himself to the world God is really only a mystery to the people who are so selfish and stubborn and unrelenting that they refuse to see Him. God has revealed Himself in creation. God has revealed Himself through the law of God written on our hearts. God has revealed Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. God has spent all of recorded history telling us who He is, revealing Himself to us and showing us how we can have a relationship with Him. To any and every man who truly seeks after God, God will be found of him. And is this not the most beautiful of truths? Do you know that God pursued you? I don't care if you got saved at 5 or if you get saved at 50. Do you know that God pursued you? That God chased you down? Yes, you had to take the step of humbling yourself before Him accepting the Word of God but He sought you. Where would you be if God had not sought you? Do you know how many people have in misguided ways sought God through cults and through false religions and they have sought and they have sought and they have sought because they've wanted some understanding, but they've sought Him in all the wrong ways, and they've refused the revelation of God that was actually given and sought after a false God, and yet their fervency for this false God and in seeking Him took them to places, took them to death, took them to suffering, took them to complete and utter ruin because they have been so earnestly seeking God. And yet, wouldn't you know it? God seeks after us. Recall the story of Martin Luther as he recounts the days before the Reformation when he would crawl on his knees up the steps of some cathedral seeking some sort of penance for his sins, knowing that he was a sinful man and never feeling as though he could find that relief and that release and that atonement and that absolution of his sin. Speaking of going from place to place, looking at relic after relic, I believe it was him, maybe I'm wrong here, but I believe it was him that said he'd seen enough wood from the cross to build Noah's ark. As he went from church to church looking at all of their idolatrous relics, hoping that one of these relics will confer upon him a blessing and take away his guilt. And God is seeking us. God is communicating to us. And it was when Martin Luther found the communication of God that he found the truth of God. And is this not the beauty that rests today in the preserved Word of God? That in this book we have everything that God desires us to know about Him? that we can read it, that we can meditate on it, that we can study it, that we can consume it, that we can place it into our minds and memorize it, that we can never fully mine out the vast treasure of knowledge that it openly declares about God. We don't need mystics. We don't need numerologists. We don't need archaeologists. We don't need linguists. We don't need a pope to tell us who God is or what God expects or how we can get to heaven. God has made Himself known to us and he is pursuing us. Now these folks help. Linguists help. Archaeologists help. But God has spoken. So number one, God's word is true. Number two, we also approach the text with the understanding that God has intended his word to be communicated and to communicate that truth to its readers. Number three, God's word is spiritual and thus only understood and by divine illumination. We know that God's word is truth, we know that he has preserved it, we know that he desires us to understand it, but these truths are only able to be understood as God's holy spirit illumines our minds and hearts to the spiritual implications of the words that we hear. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 tells us this, you're familiar But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, or they can only be investigated in a spiritual light. This verse tells us that the natural part of a man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. By the way, it's the same thing in our own lives. There's a spiritual part for those of us who are born again, but there's still a carnal part, isn't there? Paul said that He is still carnal. His flesh is carnal, sold under sin. And that's why when the, the, the Scriptures tell us that when we are walking in carnality, when we are walking out of fellowship with God, we're in darkness. 1 John 2 tells us that. Psalm 119 tells us that. That when we are not abiding in His Word, that we are in darkness. The unbeliever... Is in darkness because they're not abiding in God's word, and because they have no Holy Spirit to guide them. The believer can be in darkness as we quench or grieve the Holy Spirit, so that we can be just as blind to the to the uh, concepts, the spiritual ramifications of ideas as a unbeliever. Unless we repent of our sins, get back into fellowship with God, and allow the Word of God to illuminate our hearts through the Spirit of God, as pertaining to. The truths of Scripture. Now, the Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through five, in Colossians chapter two, verse thirteen, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. That perhaps we had heard truth, but the but we only understand that truth, or the only understanding we have of that truth, can possibly come as it is given to us by the Spirit of God. Now, let's be careful with what I'm saying here. This verse is not saying that the unregenerate man cannot receive the things of the Spirit in that he he cannot have any concept of them. He simply thinks they're foolishness. He will not have any concept of them unless the Holy Spirit of God illumines him through his humility we know from the scriptures that unbelievers can be illumined that they can understand spiritual things even if they don't receive it in john 16 verse 8 jesus christ said when he is come that is the comforter or the holy spirit he will reprove that word literally meaning to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The world is receiving divine conviction of the reality of their sin, of the truth of the Gospel, and of the divine consequences of their rejection. Furthermore, we recall Jesus taught in the parable of the sower and the seed, that there are many who, as the Word of God is sown, sure, certainly there are those that fell by the wayside and they never sprung up, but then there were those that fell into the soil, but it was shallow soil, and as it sprung up, the heat of the day came and their roots were not deep enough and so it withered and died. And there were some that it took root and they began to grow just fine and then the, the, the thorns that he says are the cares of this world came and choked out that seed so that those plants died. And then there were those that fell on good soil and they sprung up and they bore fruit and some bore tenfold and thirtyfold and a hundredfold. Speaking of, only in that last bit, those that bore fruit of those that received the gospel, all the others were illumined in part to the gospel as they gladly they gladly received parts of the gospel, but they were not willing to do what the gospel asked, and what is that? to humble themselves before God, to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ for themselves, to place themselves aside and to willingly and gladly die to self and become alive unto Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes, right? That we are buried with Him by baptism into death and were raised to newness of life. There are those that understand the Scriptures. They know they're a sinner. They know they're on their way to a sinner's hell. But they are unwilling to give God what God is asking, which is them. They are unwilling to receive the gift that God has given because they know that when they receive that gift, they must do so by dying to self. And when they die to self, when they turn from anything and everything that they think can get them into a right standing with God except for the finished work of Jesus Christ, they know that that is going to mean something as far as the way they live their lives. And they don't want that. So they reject it. These are folks that are still illumined to the Word of God. Perhaps you're listening to me this evening. Maybe online this evening. Or morning, or whenever you're listening. And you are there. You know the truths of God's Word. You have been illumined by the Spirit of God. That's called Holy Spirit conviction on your heart. That's the illumination of the Spirit on an unbeliever. That you are a sinner. That you're on your way to hell. That there's no way you can save yourselves, but you have not been willing to take the step of accepting Him as your Savior. Whether it's been the cares of this world or whether it's been your shallow understanding, you simply haven't done it. May I encourage you? The Scriptures tell us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That whosoever believeth in Him, that's Christ, should not perish but have everlasting life. If you will place your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you will die to self... If you will accept the gift that He has given to you by turning from anything and everything that you might be trusting in to save you from your sins and accepting the free gift of salvation accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, verified through His resurrection three days later, you will be saved. And so the unbeliever can be illumined and yet even after his illumination he can reject... truth so what I'm basically trying to remind you here is we're not preaching the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity which in their misunderstanding teaches that mankind cannot possibly respond to God unless God confers upon them faith nor are we preaching the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace which in their misunderstanding teaches that once a man has been given that faith or has been illumined the man cannot possibly refuse God's invitation of the gospel so that any man who has any sort of illumination as to the truth of God's word will without fail come to it a point of complete salvation through that illumination. Nor, might I add, are we preaching the Arminian doctrine of free will, which in their misunderstanding asserts that every man comes to a decision about Christ completely free from divine intervention. So that God's purposes will actually fail in this world if men are not faithful to do the things that God wants them to do. That literally every person in hell is a failure of God to convince them of their need for heaven. Or that every uh, person that you did not tell of Jesus Christ in your life is literally blood on your hands because you did not convince them. Or that when you're at a door and you're telling somebody the Gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not enough simply to give them the Gospel, but if if you haven't guilt-tripped them into really feeling the pressure of getting the Gospel and receiving the Gospel, then wouldn't you know it? Uh, you're in trouble with God for the way you handle that. We're not preaching that either. Both of these theological systems contain terrible errors and misunderstandings of the Word of God. What the Bible does teach is that the Spirit must illumine men to understand the spiritual, which means the Word of God cannot rightly be understood apart from the Spirit of God. And that's our point. That's this third point, that we cannot understand the truth that God is seeking to communicate without his help. In Psalm 119, the psalmist prayed this prayer to God in verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. For the psalmist knew something here. He knew what we know as well, that spiritual understanding comes only from a spiritual source. And that source being the Holy Spirit of God. This is why the unbeliever cannot discern spiritual things. This is why when you're talking with your unbelieving friends or unbelieving relatives and you try to say something, whether it's spiritually, um, whether it's about religion or whether it's about the Bible or whether it's about politics or whether it's about a social issue, you say something and it's so obvious to you and yet they don't get it. This is why. That's the case because they are dead to the spiritual implications of their thinking. They cannot see the spiritual. We've talked before about the man in Christianity who is willing to believe that God's Word contains errors or needs to be reinterpreted for the new generation. Why is it that people can actually say they believe the Bible but also believe the false teaching of evolution? Why is it that people can actually say they believe the Bible but also think that women preachers or sodomite relationships or murdering babies is okay? They can do this because even though they read the Bible, they're not submitting themselves to the Spirit of God and therefore they have no capacity to understand the Bible because they are not understanding it through the Spirit. Now for most, this is probably because they're not believers at all. But there is also that element of believers, as I've mentioned, who are so carnal or who in their ignorance have not been taught how to submit themselves to the truths of the Word of God and to the Holy Spirit of God so that they are not able to understand the spiritual because they are quenching the Spirit to where He's not speaking to them. But as with every spiritual endeavor in our lives the great enemy that we're speaking of here is self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is the great enemy of spiritual efficacy. If you want to be spiritually effective, the key is to be bankrupt of self. God's Word is true. God intended His Word to communicate truth to the readers God's Word is spiritual and thus only understood by divine illumination. Fourth and finally this evening in foundational concepts, divine illumination is the key that unlocks proper study. It does not replace proper study. The final foundational concept is that if you want to understand the Bible, you have to read it. Seems simple, doesn't it? If you want to understand the Bible, you have to study it a little bit. While the Bible... well. Um, what the Bible teaches cannot be known apart from divine illumination. That does not mean that divine illumination is some sort of spiritual force that magically places Bible truth into our minds. It does not mean that divine illumination is somehow a divine replacement for legitimate study. You will never know sound doctrine unless you study the Word of God unless you devote time to it, unless you pour your life into understanding it, that doesn't mean you go to seminary. That doesn't mean that you you devote, you devote quit your job and you devote yourself exclusively to the Word of God, unless that is where God would call you. But what I'm saying here is that you can't know the Bible if you don't know the Bible. God's not just going to download it into your head. You've got to read the words of Scripture. You've got to meditate upon the words of Scripture. You've got to memorize the words of Scripture. Sound doctrine isn't just going to fall into your minds and hearts because you're a Christian. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us this. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul told Timothy that it was important not just to know the Bible, but to know it properly. Not just any interpretation of the Bible will do. There's only one right way to interpret the Bible and that is God's way. And that way is found only to those who will take the time and the effort to know their God, to know their Bibles, and to seek the Holy Spirit's wisdom to illuminate their hearts to an understanding of the Word of God so that they can rightly divide it and then be able to properly apply it. We have both the privilege and the duty of knowing the Scriptures and giving the Holy Spirit the, we might say, the, the tools necessary to properly teach us, and then to apply those things to our hearts. And I mentioned this briefly already, may I just say that we live in a time when the capacity of the church to know our Bibles is greater than any point in history. Through technology and education, you and I have the potential to know things about God and His Word that former generations could not even dream about. You can do a study in 20 minutes that might have taken hours back when you actually had to flip through books instead of just clicking a mouse. Back when you had to go to a library instead of just Googling it on the internet. We have the capacity to know the Word of God and resources like never before. You can get rare resources found in some random library in Italy that have been uploaded to the internet. Things that scholars would have done dramatic things to have access to in centuries past. But as I say that, does something seem strange about that? That we're at a time in history where the Bible can be known like it never could before? where we can study faster than we've ever been able to study before, when we have resources like we've never had before. But read the news, go into churches, and what do you find? People don't know God. And people don't know God's Word. We have, what, 16, 17 churches here in Buffalo? Go door knocking with pastors some Thursday night and you know what you'll find? People in Buffalo don't know God. And they don't know His Word. They go to church, but they don't know God. And they don't know His Word. And for those who actually do know God's Word, the next question is, how many of them care enough to obey it? Paul spoke of a time in 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7, just prior to the Scriptures being inspired, as he says in verses 16 and 17, that he calls perilous times. Times where men will be lovers of their own selves. He describes it as a time when men would love pleasures more than love God. When men would have a form of godliness, but they would deny the power of that godliness. When men would be ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. We're passing into those days very clearly. Daniel was told in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, that at the time of the end, the time just before the tribulation, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased such is an apt description not only of our world, but even of our church. Now we say all of this to consider the reality that we have no excuse for biblical ignorance in this age, and whatever tools we can give the Spirit of God to work with will make us more usable for Him. And so with these foundational concepts in place, let me just briefly and quickly assert Our method of interpretation. The method that best reflects the way that God has communicated with us. When we know that God's Word is true, when we know that He desires to communicate with us, when we understand that it is only through the Holy Spirit's illumination that we can understand the Word of God, but when we also understand that it takes proper study in order to give the Holy Spirit the tools with which to teach us, we come to these four points of proper interpretation. That interpretation should be literal, grammatical, historical, and contextual. We interpret literally, meaning that to the best of our knowledge and ability, we take what God's Word says at face value. We don't seek to strip the text of its obvious meaning in order to impose on it an obscure meaning. Now, this does not mean that we ignore literary devices such as similes, a comparison using like or as, or metaphors. A comparison that does not use like or as, or hyperbole, gross exaggerations, or um, prophetic language, which is often uh, uses um, literary devices such as allusion to get their message across. But rather, it is our intent that we approach the text with the assumption that God's Word will plainly tell us what He wants us to know unless there are indications in the text that would lead us to otherwise think, such as with prophecy, that that is not going to be the case. That there might be some flowery language here that we have to peel through. So we interpret literally. We interpret grammatically. Meaning that the language and the words matter. We do not approach the Bible thinking that simply the concepts are enough. Every word matters. Now, we also don't, in consistency with our first point, try to redefine the language in order to fit possible spiritual or theological ideas. We don't say, well, the Bible says that we're to love our neighbor. What do you think the Bible means when it says love? Well, maybe it means tolerate. That's probably... We, we don't try to reinterpret the language. We look at what the language said. We look at how they would have understood it in the day it was written. And we say, if that's the way it was supposed to be understood, then that's the way we're going to understand it. We're not going to try and reinterpret the text. We're not going to play gymnastics with definitions. We're not going to play gymnastics with meanings. The Jehovah's Witness and Latter-day Saints are notorious for this. As a matter of fact, Catholics are too. They be- yes, they are saved. Yes, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Mormons will say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, except that when they say that He's the Son of God, they don't mean that He is God in flesh. They mean that He is a derivative from God. He is a little God. He is not the one and only true God. He has divine attributes that, by the way, we can obtain too if we're good Mormons. And so they reinterpret what has otherwise plain meaning. We don't do that to the Bible. So we interpret literally. We interpret grammatically. Third, we interpret historically meaning that we try to interpret the bible based upon the time it was written the audience it was written to the human penman and the events of the day we do not assume that the bible was simply written for the future we recognize it was written for people at a specific time in history that there was a specific context in which it was written and we use that historical context to help us to help flavor the text in order that we can apply it today and then finally we interpret Contextually, meaning that we interpret each passage in light of the rest of the Bible. We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture and expect that the clear and obvious teaching of the Bible will take precedence over things which are ambiguous. In other words, if there's some muddy water in this area, we're not going to take that muddy water and die on that hill. But we're going to allow the clear portions of Scripture to inform the muddy water so that we can get a good idea of what the Scriptures are saying. There are ambiguous things in Scripture. We're going to be talking about the spiritual gifts in two weeks. I'm not going to be able to give you a definitive biblical definition of every one of those spiritual gifts because the Bible doesn't give them. But as we take the Scriptures and we interpret Scripture with it and we see how those words are used in other contexts, words like prophecy, words like knowledge, words like teaching, words like healing, words like tongues then we take the context of the entire Bible and it helps inform us as to what those gifts probably entail. And that gives us a direction to go off of. Now next time we're together, we will look at the particulars of interpreting prophecy. Um, Not just interpretation as a whole, but prophetic interpretation. And we'll do so with the intent that as we look at the events of the last days, we can have confidence that the way we are interpreting these events is in line with how God desires us to. And that's how we're going to close this evening. It's not going to have that, as I mentioned earlier in my sermon, it's not going to have that piece of meat that you can take with you and it's going to really get you through the week, necessarily. Except that perhaps it will help you as you read your Bible, to remind yourself exactly how it is you're you're supposed to read and why it is important that you read in order that you might be a proper vessel for the lord to use to teach and to grow let's pray